0: Well, good morning, man. It's good to be here. What a, what a great way to start a Saturday morning! Be together to worship together. Hopefully, you got some sleep. I was telling Ryan, my, my I couldn't get enough bars on my phone. So even talking to my wife, or I sent her a couple of texts, and they took forever to go through, and then she sent a bunch back, and they arrived about two to three in the morning. And so I get these texts in the middle of the night, and I'm like, oh, something urgent. And I grab it. I love you. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> love you, too. <laughs> you know, and about 30 minutes later, I miss you. <laughs> like, okay. <laughs> Silence. Where do we find this? So uh, other than the uh, middle of the night interruptions, it was great to get some sleep. It, it was great just being with you guys. The energy of of what God's doing in this group, what God's doing in this church is so awesome to be around. Don't take it for granted. You you are in a sweet season together and, and ride it and enjoy it and see God do great things through you. You know, I told you in, in my past, one of the things I did was I was a tour guide at Graceland. It was right out of high school, first job I had out of high school. If you go to Graceland today, it's it's a pretty slick operation. I mean literally thousands of people come through there a day. Now everything's kind of behind glass and you, you get, you know, the headphones and they, the tour is on tape. But back then, this was late 80s, it was about 100 college students who were all tour guides. And we're kind of in the rooms and leading people on tours. And, you know, you can only talk about Elvis for so long before you start getting bored and you look for ways to mess with each other. 100 college students, Elvis stuff, Elvis freaks in different ways. I mean, it's a great combination. And so we were always doing stuff. Uh, We we would uh, We we, we weren't always the best about it I I would say We had a bet jar in the break room And so a lot of times we'd bet each other Just kind of crazy things Like who could come up with the most outrageous Elvis story That wasn't true That you just inserted in your tour somewhere (laughs) You just kind (laughs) of threw it in And end of the week we'd kind of tally up Who had pulled it off And you got the money that was in the jar And, uh, you know, one time I had a friend, Tommy, that would always get me in trouble. And so Tommy, one day he bet me, he said, I dare you to wear something of Elvis's all day. (laughs) And so we were sitting there thinking about it, and we thought, you know, the only thing we could really pull off is shoes. So we went over, there was this row of shoes that were there, and so I picked out his penny loafers. I took my shoes off, put them up there, and put on his shoes. And Tommy put on his bowling shoes. (laughs) And so we're doing the tour all day. I'm just walking around in Elvis' shoes. People are taking pictures of our shoes and thinking they're Elvis' shoes. And, <laughs> and, and later in the day, Tommy wants to raise it up a little bit. So while I'm doing part of my tour, because I'm standing there and I've got a group in front of me and I'm telling her about things behind me. Tommy's behind the group, so he's trying to mess with me. And, and now he's put on Elvis's. he had this kind of poncho and a sombrero. And he's wearing that, and he's walking with the bowling shoes behind the group, and he starts doing this thing out of the, the movie Three Amigos, you know, he's uh, uh, like this. <laughs> and I'm trying to keep a straight face, do my tour, and uh, suddenly I look up behind Tommy, and the manager of the tour guides, Todd Morgan, is walking up. And, and Todd was a little bit fanatical about Elvis, like we were all on holy ground or something. And Todd walks up, and, and suddenly the horror in Todd's face as he realizes Tommy's wearing all of the memorabilia. And I watch Tommy being drug off, and I finish my shift, and, and there's this, this call that goes out, emergency meeting of all the tour guides right now. Come immediately to the tour guide trailer. And so I go into the break room, and everybody's standing there. Tommy's up front. He's kind of busted. He's with Todd. And Todd starts this thing, Tommy had the audacity to touch the memorabilia. And I don't know if you people realize what a, you know, privilege it is to work here. And he starts going through this. He said, Tommy suspended for a week. He says, from this moment forward, anybody touching any of the merchandise, any of the memorabilia is fired on the spot. Now I'm standing there in Elvis's shoes at the time. (laughs) And so they're like clock out and leave. And so I have no way to go back to exchange shoes. I'm walking off campus with Elvis' shoes on. <laughs> and, and for a night there, I thought, you know, I may own a new pair of Elvis' shoes. The next day, I was able to go back and switch them out without getting caught. And, uh, you know, I, at first, if you'd asked me then, I would have told you, why are they making such a big deal about it? But, but a few years later, I saw an auction where people were auctioning off clothing items of Elvis's. And, and it wasn't the same items, but there were a pair of shoes, a pair of tennis shoes that Elvis had owned once that were auctioned for $16,000. Suddenly I realized, you know, I, I was really walking around in something valuable there for a while. But, but when you're around something all the time and you talk about it all the time and you experience it day in, day out, you, you forget how valuable it really is. It's one of my biggest fears about the church is sometimes we we talk about and we sing about and we say scriptures and and we can talk about it so much, we forget the power and the value that's there. We forget sometimes when you open up the Bible, it's literally a God-breathed book that's alive with power. When, When you think about the gospel it literally has the power to change lives like nothing else. There's nothing else that changes somebody's eternity other than the power of Jesus Christ. And, and sometimes when we talk about the church, and, and maybe as you look around, you look at a group like this, 150 people, that, that you can think, man, this is a great group, it's a fun group, it's it's energetic group. But you can forget, because we rub shoulders and elbows with each other all the time, the power that's in this room. See, we're talking about these couple of days of just taking some time of what does it mean to let that power out? What does it mean to shine? And and yesterday, we just looked in a practical way of just loving your neighbors. Today, I want to add a principle to it. It's love your neighbors, light your world. Put those two together. Love your neighbors, light your world. And if you look in your notes, or if you got a Bible, you can turn there, but the, the text is right there in your notes. Matthew 5, 14 through 16, verses that I, I have loved. Because I, I think in it Jesus captures this power in a couple of metaphors. And, it, and it's in the Sermon on the Mount, his first extended sermon. And he, in that sermon, begins by describing the character of the people that are blessed, the people that are part of his kingdom. And then he throws in these metaphors. Look at it in the verses there. It says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. He uses these two metaphors that that unfortunately for us in the age we live in, we don't even realize how powerful they are. Back in that time, two of the most valuable things were salt and light. If you lived in an age where there was no refrigeration, where they didn't have the same medicine that we have. Salt was an antiseptic. Salt was a preservative for meat and for food. Salt was one of the primary seasonings that people had. So, so salt was a commodity that was greatly valued. So when he'd say you are salt, it's not this table implement that you think, oh, okay, yeah, big deal, we're salt. People would go, whoa, that's valuable. If you lived in an age where we don't have electricity, so we live in an age where it's on all the time. We can't fathom what it's like that your life was governed by the sun. That that light was this powerful agent that really transformed the world. And so when he looks at him, he says, you are salt. You are light. And and Jesus is coming out of the gate with his church with it. I mean, this is one of his first sermons. He he wants us to grasp this identity and this principle. In fact, as you walk through it, there's some things that jump out. The first one is it really does define our identity. It defines our identity as followers of Christ. As followers of Christ, we are presently and actively salt and light. We are presently and actively. Notice what he says. He doesn't say you will be. He doesn't say, you know, if you really, really follow me for many, many years and you kind of get out of the baby stage and you really get mature, one day you're going to be salt and light. Now, what does he say? He looks at him and says, you are salt. You are are light. You are powerful. You are valuable. You know, if I could give any gift to followers of Jesus Christ, if I could give you any gift in this room, I'd love that for about 10 minutes, you could see yourself the way God sees you. I think it would transform all of our lives. I think some of you that carry so much shame that if you could see yourself through the power of Jesus Christ and how forgiven you are, that God doesn't attach that stuff to you, that you're clean. Some of you as daughters of Christ, how beautiful you are, how much he adores you and smiles every time he sees you. Sons that he is so proud of, I think if we could see ourselves the way he sees us, we'd stop striving so much. We'd stop trying to earn something that's already there. And I think if we could embrace that identity the way he sees us, the way he identifies us, instead of trying to earn something that's already been earned through Jesus Christ, instead of trying to live up to something that we never could live up to begin with but was given to us through the power of Christ, I think it would free us up in a way to go and live in the power of Christ with this kind of identity. Jesus says, you are salt. You you are light. I've changed you. And I think in that term, it'd be something that we'd recognize. Missionaries aren't these people that, that... are super spiritual and, and you know this extra category, pastors and preachers and missionaries. Man, those are the real spiritual people. No, he's saying everybody's in. And, and so one of the key things I always say, and, and, and teach it at our church, and I have people say it, you're a missionary. In fact, I want you to say those words together. Say, I am a missionary. A missionary. <laughs> and some of you go, well, I'm not allowed to say that. I mean, that's like those super special people that get on planes and You know, today we sent somebody off to the Philippines. And I I go, God calls some missionaries to go cross cultural, to go overseas, and it's awesome. Love it. We need to celebrate them. We need to lift them up as heroes. But you know, He's called you as a missionary where He's placed you. See, He's a strategic God. And, and so as he looked out, he knew he needed some to be pastors. He needed church planners, He knew he needed some that were evangelists and teachers. But he also knew he needed doctors and teachers and businessmen and tech geeks and people of every stripe, every persuasion. And he wanted to put them all over the planet in different pockets in different place so that you could be the missionary to where he's placed you. And where he's placed you and what you do is no less than anybody else. We are all salt and light in the sphere that he's placed us. See, If you look at it, the thing, we are all missionaries strategically called and placed by God. We're all missionaries strategically called and placed by God. And and the more we embrace this as an identity, the more it actually starts showing up in our activity. If You don't embrace the identity first. It's something you're always trying to do as opposed to when you identify it's who you are, it changes how you treat people and how you act in the world. I, I, I was at a retreat a couple of years ago with Tony Campolo's group about this size, and I like Tony. I don't agree with everything Tony teaches at times, but I, I really like uh, some of the core principles that, that Tony will call you back to. And he, he was talking at this retreat about a friend of his. A friend of his at Christmas time, she wanted to just experience Christmas and some of the decorations, so she went to Nordstrom's. And she was just walking around Nordstrom's, looking at the decorations, looking at things. And and she came by this section of Nordstrom's where they had designer gowns. And she looked at the price tags of them. She just thought, man, these these are so beautiful. And and right at that moment, this homeless woman kind of walked up. And the sales clerk came over to her and said, can I help you? And the homeless woman said, "Uh, yeah, I'm going to a fancy ball tonight. I need a dress. And as this other woman watched it, she thought, okay, I wonder what's going to happen here. And without batting an eye, the sales clerk looked at her and said, okay, come come this way, madam. Let's let's pull out some dresses that would be great for you. And and she sat there and watched over the, the next hour. And she took this woman to different dresses and she'd hold them up to her and she'd, you know, this is a great color for you. And then they pulled three off the rack and they went to the dressing room. She said, Come on, you, you need to go try some of these on to really know. And this woman just grabbed a dress to go to the dressing room. She wanted to see what was going to happen. And over that course of that hour, this woman would come out and try on a different dress, and they'd look in the mirror. And then she'd go try on a different dress. As the time ended, as you would expect, finally the homeless woman kind of looked at her and she handed the dresses back. She said, I don't really like any of these. I'm going to go to a different store. And she started to leave. And before she left, this young saleswoman took out her card, and she went over to the woman. And she said, it has been such a pleasure to serve you today. And if you ever come back to Nordstrom's, here's my card. Would you please ask for me? And the woman left. Finally, the onlooker couldn't stand anymore. She went over to the sales clerk. She said, look, I've been watching this. And you knew she wasn't going to buy one of these dresses. And yet, wh- wh- why Why did you spend so much time? And, and here's what this young woman said. She said, well, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And, and, and this is where he's placed me. This section of Nordstrom's is the part of this planet that I get to serve him. And, and so every day before I come to work, I always pray the same prayer, Lord, would you give me the opportunity to make this part of Nordstrom's look more like heaven than earth today through me? And so that woman was the answer to my prayer. See, you you, you grab that young girl and ask her, what do you do? I mean, her vocation may be sales clerk, you know what her calling is? She's a missionary to this planet. And she looks at it in a way of going, this is where God's placed me, and I want to make this area look more like His kingdom than this kingdom. See, that's what Jesus was praying in the Lord's Prayer. What did He say? Our Father in our heart in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. Where? On earth as it is in heaven. How does that take place? It takes place through people that embrace you are salt and you are light and you are the instrument where God's placed you for that to happen. Here's the second thing it points out in this is our influence. We, we, we see our identity but also our influence. We have a distinct and powerful influence on the surroundings. It's unmistakable. You, you, you never mistake whether salt is on something. You, you know it immediately. You you never mistake if there's light or not. There's not a point where you go, okay, is there really light there or not? No, you, you can tell light. And and so notice Jesus has picked two metaphors that you don't get confused with the world. It, it, it's not people that people are looking at you going, huh, I wonder what they're really like. No, he says, no, you stand out. You're powerful. You're distinct from them. You're You're, you're powerful over them. I love this because notice what he doesn't say. Jesus doesn't say, and sometimes we teach it this way, I'm going to come and I'm going to change your life and I'm going to really transform you, but good luck living in this world. I mean, have you seen how dark it is out there? you seen how bad people are? I mean, you're barely going to survive. I mean, you, if you, maybe if you all get together and you just kind of shut the doors and don't let any bad people in, you'll be okay. Jesus talked that way. Sometimes we act that way, though. You get on the internet, Christians are the scaredest people I've ever seen on the internet. I mean, it doesn't matter what comes along, Y2K, whatever it is. I mean, Christians are the first ones out there going, it's bad, it's bad. (laughs) And I do not understand it. I mean, Jesus never talked that way. He said, of course the world's dark, but you're the light. Of course the world needs the power of salty lies, but you're the salt. So get out there. You're, you're going to have a distinct influence on this world, an unmistakable influence on that world. See, th- this influence is, di- is by design visible. It's by design visible. People can't help but see it. It's by design distinct in the way that it is. And, and, and sometimes we think it's just message. I think it's life as much as message. You know, there's a story of uh, St. Francis of Assisi. St. Francis had a young monk with him, and the the monk was training, but he he really wanted to get out there and preach. And finally one day Francis says, hey, we're going to go preach the gospel today. And the monk was like, this will be awesome. And so Francis took him, and they went down to the village, and they went on a walk together, and they went down to the market, went down and took care of some affairs. They went and sat for a little while, and then they came back. The young monk looked at him and he said, I thought we were going to go preach today. And Francis smiled at him. He says, we're always preaching. When you walk, you preach. When you interact at the market, you're preaching. When when you just talk to people, you're preaching the gospel through the way that you live your life. Now, it doesn't mean that there's not vocal proclamation. We'll talk about that. But but, but don't ever underestimate the power of salt and light being salt and light. A couple years ago in, in the London... Daily Mail, the, the newspaper, people were shocked on the Saturday before Easter there was an editorial from A. N. Wilson. A.M. Wilson was known, especially in England, as one of the, the, the biggest skeptics of the gospel. Uh, he was an atheist, he was a brilliant philosopher, had debated a number of noted leaders of different people. And so it was just known. And people were shocked on the Saturday before Easter when in an editorial in the London paper, A.N. Wilson declared, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ and I will go tomorrow to church to worship the resurrected Lord Jesus. And he wrote in it, he said, I've had the privilege to debate with some of the greatest minds. I've had the privilege to interact with some of the smartest people. He said, but that's not what changed me. He said, it was the normal men and women who follow Jesus and the way they had their marriages and the way they raised their kids and the way they faced life and death that there was a resurrection power in their life that I couldn't argue with. And I found myself drawn to the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, there's a power that we have that's been placed in each one of us but but let me say, when the distinction is lost, so is the influence. Jesus said when salt stops being salty, it's thrown out. When, when light is hidden, it, it doesn't impact anybody anymore. And, and and sometimes I think we live in an age, especially where it's getting a little harder to be a Christian, where you stand out a little bit more, where the culture's going this way and we find ourselves, if you're going to stay true to the gospel, this way. And sometimes we delude ourselves into thinking we can cool people into the kingdom if we're cool enough, and if we talk just like them, and if we make it look like it, really is no big deal if you follow Jesus. Your life doesn't have to change. We're going to cool them in. And, and, And the problem is the world looks at it and says, why bother? I mean, if you are no different than we are, why would I go through all the trouble you go through? See, they're looking for people that are distinct. It's this combination of radical acts of love with unwavering commitment to truth that actually reaches a generation. And you've got to have both of them. Because if you have an unwavering commitment to truth, people will reject it. They don't know what to do with it. But when you combine that with a radical acts of love that they can't argue with, it's a powerful witness that they've got to pay attention to. Remember a few years ago, Mother Teresa spoke at the National Prayer Breakfast. And, and Bill Clinton was the president at the time. And, and if you've ever been to the, the National Prayer Breakfast, you've got all the congressmen, all the people here, I've uh, been a couple of times with it. And they always have a speaker, and one of the things with the speaker, they always try to tell them, don't be controversial. This, this is not a day to be controversial at all. And Bill Clinton in particular told Mother, Mother Teresa, kind of, you know, we're here to focus on prayer. Let, let's not really dive into anything that might cause any controversy. And of course, Mother Teresa, right out of the gate, starts speaking about the life of the unborn and children and, and who's going to stand up for them. And she, and she i mean strong words in her whole speech but at one part of the speech she said america if you don't want your children give them to me i'll take them and bill clinton as he got up afterwards he said these words he said you know mother Teresa and i don't always agree on everything but it's hard to argue with her life See, see, there's a power in the way that she lived her life that was radical. But when you're on the streets of Calcutta and you're pulling people off the streets and you take care of the least of these, and that's the testimony of your life, people may not agree with your position, but they can't argue with the way you're living your life. And I think if there's ever a generation that needs to step forward with an unwavering commitment to truth, it's this one. But we got to combine it with radical acts of love that when they put those two together, they may not always agree with this, but they can't argue with this. They don't know what to do with it. Jesus calls us to that. Third thing is our focus. From the beginning, we're called to an outward orientation. It's an outward orientation. You don't put salt on more salt, do you? Is anybody here, have you ever tasted salt and go, you know what this salt needs? (laughs) It needs a little more salt. They, they don't sell daytime flashlights, do they? Okay? You, you never buy, no, no one walked here today, you know, I need a flashlight to get to the... Why? It, it's redundant. It's not needed. And, and, and by design, Jesus is saying, I've made you this way, not for you. You don't need to keep putting salt on top of more salt. Salt is for the unseasoned. You, you, you don't just pool light together for its own sake. We live with an outward orientation. We have been transformed so that we can bless the world. He blesses us to bless others. One of the things I'd encourage you, if you've never gone on a, an overseas trip, you need to go. Uh, I, in fact, I always try to encourage you, if you could live out of the country for up to a year of your life, it would change your life. It really would. But but get out of the country. Go somewhere. See what God's doing. Because I think in America, we've been so blessed, sometimes we think the blessing is just for us. And so we just pile blessing on blessing. And, and you get out of the country, and you realize, man, God's doing things in the world, and, and their orientation is naturally. One of my favorite places to go is Rwanda. I've been to Rwanda several times. If if you go to Rwanda, you know the history of the genocide. It's, it's, one, it's a country that's been marked by terrible tragedy. But when you go there, what God is doing in that place, I've got a lot of friends who are working through business there, a friend of mine that bought 20% of the coffee industry in Rwanda because he's changing the country through the thousands of people that are impacted through it. friend that's doing a business as mission training school in Rwanda. One of my favorite places to go is this place called Cornerstone Academy. Cornerstone was started in Uganda, and they, they started one in Rwanda. And it's a boarding school for high school students in the country there. And, and they've been chosen from around the country one for their faith, but also for their vision of what they're going to do. And these kids have nothing. I mean, you go there, it's pretty primitive in a lot of ways. They wash their own clothes out by hand. They have responsibility. But, but you walk onto that campus, and these high school students, they're in these crisp uniforms. They come out. They grab your hand. They look you in the eye. I mean, they, they have a motto there, and they live by it and hold each other to it. They, they, they would say, we're Cornerstone Academy. We, we are women of virtue and men of integrity. And they hold each other for the rest of their life. If you ever are a Cornerstone grad and you come across another Cornerstone grad, you look him in the eye and go, are you a man of integrity? Yes. Are you a woman of virtue? They call each other up. Th- 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 these kids have nothing, and yet they have vision that's beyond them. Every single one of them, you, you talk to them and say, well, why are you here? Well, I'm going to go to Cornerstone, and then my goal is to go to law school because we need lo- new legislators who are going to lead in a godly way in our country. So I'll be a legislator within Rwanda. I'm going to go to medical school because up in the upcountry, there's not medical care. I'm going to start a hospital there. I'm going to go into politics. I'm an engineer. All of them have a vision for how they're going to transform their country for the sake of Jesus Christ. And the graduates are doing it. One of the coolest things, the last time I was there, I met one young woman. She's 19. She's the mother of 11 street children. Just children that were her parents that were killed off the either AIDS or the genocide. She's she's got a house of 11 kids she takes care of. And to come to Cornerstone, she had to get another 17-year-old to be the house mother while she's gone. And takes whatever money that she gets to keep those kids alive. The the kids at Cornerstone found out some of the local elementary kids weren't able to go to school because they didn't have the $25 registration fee. So these kids who have nothing pooled all their money together, and they were able to send 13 kids to school. And the kids they went, they went down and discipled. And and, and as I'm hearing these stories, I mean, you're kind of blown away by it. And and I I said to one of them, I was like, man, that is awesome you did that. And they stopped me so quick. They go, oh, no, 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 you don't understand. We get to go to Cornerstone. To whom much is given. Much is required. We, We couldn't fathom not helping these kids. Do you know how much we've been blessed? Remember, I was walking away from that conversation. I was about to get in the van. I thought, how do I teach my kids that? And then God said, don't worry about your kids. Why don't you learn it first? (laughs) To have that kind of orientation of life, we've been given not for our own sake so that we can share this within the world. Second thing you see in that is Jesus' audacious plan has never been for less than the world. Guys, it's been never less than the whole world. And, And Jim Collins talks about every great company, every great organization needs a BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal. Something so big out there, it stretches you. I'm going to tell you, Jesus has the BHAG of all big BHAGs. I mean that right out of the gate, this little motley band, these guys who had barely been able to keep it together, he calls them after his resurrection. He gets them. He says, I'm about to leave. But before I leave, here, let's hear the mission. Look at it from Matthew 28. You can see it there again on your notes. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. I don't know if we got that slide. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go to make disciples of all nations. Can you fathom they're here? They can't even hold it together in their neighborhood. And he's already talking about nations? I mean, he looks at them and says, guys, okay, it's time to go global. Man, we're ready. Let's go. It's absolutely audacious. How? Discipling them. Go, make disciples, baptize them, teach them. And don't worry, I'm going to be with you. I got this. I just conquered death. This is not a big deal. I will be with you. Let's go. It's audacious. Acts 1.8, same thing he says in it. But you will see power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll be my witnesses. Let's start here. But then let's go to Judea and Samaria. Let's go to the other parts of the world. Because that plan has never ended. And so what God's doing in Awakening Church in this room, in this time, in this season, is not just for this area, it's for the world. When he gathers people, he fills them with his spirit, he makes them salt and light. When he launches a new church, it's never for that church's sake. So if you think Awakening is just for Awakening's sake, you've missed the whole vision of why this is here. Awakening is here, not just to reach the Bay Area, not just to reach California, it's here to reach the world. And, and the way the world is changing, you actually could do it. I mean, there, there's still people groups around the world that do not know the gospel. Whole people groups. In fact, the Southern Baptist Convention measured around the world the countries with, with the most unreached people group, a people group that would have less than 2% that have heard the gospel or are involved in it with that. The country with the most unreached people groups within the borders of that country is India. India still has more unreached people groups than any other country in the world. Second most country is China. China still has hundreds of people groups that are not evangelized. The third most unreached country is the United States of America. There's 361 unreached people groups in the borders of this country. That is because we have more migrants than any other country in the world. We have 43 immigrants, million immigrants in our country. That's 30 million more than the next country. See, other countries are closing their borders still. We're welcoming them in the world to us. It's one of the greatest things about living in America. Forty-three million. But, but, But as you hear that, you know, they're not going everywhere in the country. You see pockets of it. They go to kind of key areas. They go to big cities. They go to coastal cities. They go to areas where there's technology and education. They go to areas where there's a lot of money. Huh, any, anybody know an area like that anywhere around here? I, I said it to you last night. You, you may have thought I was just blowing smoke. I, I didn't mean it. I, I really wasn't. When I said the most strategic thing you could do of reaching this planet, when you think our country and the number of unread people groups, when you think of immigration, when you think of the people that are coming, and if you were to plan a church where there's high technology, high communication, high education, high influence, high power, and a mix of cultures and people groups in one place, in one time, the most strategic, powerful thing you could do is plant a church right in the middle of that because you can reach the world. If, if that church doesn't exist for the church's sake, it actually exists for the world's sake. If that church doesn't limit itself that you get nice little simple goals that, man, we want to pull off some services and wouldn't it be fun if we had a couple friends come? But that church actually had a BHAG, a big, hairy, audacious goal that matched Jesus. That said, we've been put here in this time, in this place to absolutely reach this planet. And there's a power in this room to do it through the power of Christ. How do we do that? Our strategy. Our strategy in that As followers of Christ, we're saved by faith and created for good works. We've been talking about this, but I want to make sure you get this theologically and it's real clear with it. You're saved by faith, but it's created for good works. Those two always go hand in hand together. You've got to have them in that combination, though. Uh, Probably the best verse for that, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For as by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that nobody can boast. Put a period there it's not of works. Nobody got saved because they did enough good things. Nobody got saved because they rescued enough people. Nobody got saved because they were out there loving enough people. There's a lot of great religions and charities that do all that. They don't save you. You are only saved through grace, through the power of Jesus Christ. Put the period there, but don't leave off the next verse. Because sometimes we stop after that. We go, oh, and it's so great. Jesus saved us. And I love that. And I love grace. Stop. Boom. Good. We're done he says no no I'm not done with you yet though look at verse 10 for we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus why to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do you were saved through grace but he's got some stuff for you to do so so don't confuse it that I got to do it to get saved but likewise don't stop doing stuff just because you got saved and you're in and you're so happy you're in the club who cares about anybody else He says, i got a planet to reach and you'll only reach it through the power of the gospel and the good works. James says it even more explicitly. He says, what good is it then, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. When God brings that across your path, here will be the choice. Do you actually have a living, active faith, or is it just one of words? Are you just looking around the world and go, man, I, I hope you're okay. Be warm, be filled. Or do you actually live this thing out in a radical way? You know, for Lee and I, th- this was one of the most convicting passages as we were praying through. You know, I told you we, we've got our five kids and then the two adopted ones. We adopted nieces of mine. They were my brother's girls because my brother drank himself to death. I, I, I walked my brother through a process. I couldn't get him to stop drinking alcohol. He literally drank himself to death. The liver gave out. And 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 in that, toward the later stages, when he couldn't take care of his girls anymore, and, and it came up over the course of about a week, we had to make a decision. Somebody's got to take care of these girls. We had four kids in the, at the time, and the fifth one on the way. And, and and we're we're sitting there praying together, we're going surely God, you, you don't expect us suddenly to add two teenagers to our family. And we get, we got away and and just reading through James. You know, this stuff says if you really have faith, you don't just look at people and say be warmed and be filled. James says this is pure and undefiled religion. You take care of widows and orphans. You take care of those who don't have anybody. And 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 everything emotionally in us wanted to pull back. And go surely not God. But Scripture said, "Do you really believe this stuff, or not?" And we welcome those two girls in our family; they're daughters now. We adopted them. I can't fathom life without them now. But but I'm going to tell you, there's times when your emotions, there's times when your reason times when all those things will say, do you really believe this? And and, and as followers of Christ, we have to make some hard decisions. Are we going to talk about this stuff or live it? Where we combine unwavering commitment to truth with radical acts of love and acts of faith. See, we're we're to bring the good news in partnership with good works. Good news goes with good works. It's proclamation and transformation. Transformation. And if you read through Jesus' life, this is how he did ministry. We we lost this a lot in the 20th century. At some point, the church became all about proclamation. We'll tell people over here, you're going to die and go to hell. Just take my word for it. And if you'll come to a church, we'll tell you all about it. And that's all they heard from us. The the problem is they didn't see the combination. Where's the good works with that? Where, where, Where is this transformational ministry? Look how Jesus did ministry. Look look how he went from villages, Matthew 4, 23. Jesus went through Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, healing every disease and sickness among the people. Teaching and healing. Look at it in Matthew 9. Jesus went to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel. You've got to have the proclamation of the gospel. But what did he combine it with? Healing every disease and sickness. It's truth with proof. Even Jesus, when He went in, He spoke the truth unwaveringly, but what did He do? He gave the proof that He constantly was ministering to people, touching them, healing them, being a part of their life. Now, what Jesus could pull off in one person now takes the whole church. And the way He's gifted a church is some of us have that proclamation gift. We can preach. We can teach. But if we don't have the hands and feet that are out there touching and loving and changing lives, we only have half the equation. We've got to go with truth and proof, and it takes every single one of us carrying that banner and carrying that message. Folks, that's what transformed this planet. When the church was first launched, it was a bunch of slaves. It was a bunch of outcasts. It was not a power broker. They were slandered in every way. The early church, if you read it, they were called incestuous. They were an incestuous cult because they keep talking about brothers and sisters who love each other. And so literally, they were accused of incest. Some people accused them of cannibalism because they keep talking about eating flesh and drinking blood. And so they're, they're cannibals. They're, they're, they're incestuous. They're, they're outcast. What turned the tide that this ragtag band became the most influential group in the world? If you go back in the early centuries, you know what the turning point was? It wasn't that a bunch of powerful people suddenly joined it. It wasn't because they had big churches. They were still scattered in house churches. If you read through church history, the turning point with it was in an age when infants' lives were not valued. And so if you wanted to get rid of a baby, you just put it out on the street and you let it die. But, But suddenly they started noticing the babies were disappearing. And where were they going? Oh, Christians were going out on the street and they were taking these babies into their home. It was not an age of hospitals and care. And so people that got sick, you were on your own and usually died until Christians started showing up. And you had whole villages that were under quarantine because plague would come. And when a plague hit a village, the only thing well people could do is just leave the village and leave the sick behind and hope that it didn't spread. And they started noticing as they're leaving village villages, there were groups of people that were heading into the villages. They go, why are you going there? Don't you know the plague there? And they look at him and go, no, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And he's called me to take care of the least of these. See, when the church stepped forward, they didn't have a lot of power. They didn't have a lot of influence. But they had the power of the gospel. And they combined it with radical acts of love. And it changed the world. It's what God's called us to. It's what he's called you to. If you look at the last part, I don't want you to miss this, our goal. The goal why we do this is the ultimate goal is to bring glory to God. This isn't about us, it's about God. Remember, He's the one that was the missionary God. He's the one that came up with it. It's for His glory. It's not that we do it so everybody will know what a cool church awakening is. It's not that we do it so that everybody just applauds and goes, man, have you heard the things they do? No, it's all about God, folks. And when you do it in a way, we must humbly recognize this is God's mission to and for humanity in order to show the world His glory. Remember that verse? He says, let they see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. The, the, the coolest part of this is when you live it in a way that people can't help but glorify God. In, in our church in Little Rock, we, we used to do days called Share Fests. It was a lot like Beautiful Day through Westgate. In fact, uh, uh, when I first heard of Beautiful Day, I was talking to Clifford, and I was like, Steve, man, that that sounds so much like ShareFest. He said, oh, yeah, we came to your conference in Little Rock, and then we renamed it and did it, and I think they do it better than we ever dreamed. But one of the things we do at ShareFest is just how do we take the church, go out and love the community, and one of the best ways we could do it there was through public schools, where, where we would take about 500 people in one weekend and blitz a public school and go into the toughest inner city schools and literally landscape the whole thing, put in a new playground, paint the school, every wall in the school, build cabinets for teachers. We'd always put in a cool teacher's lounge with new furniture. We'd place the principals. I mean, it was, just, it was just like this total home makeover of public schools. We did it in about 30 public schools. First year we tried to do it, they didn't want us in. Oh, what's a church in public schools? Churches don't like public schools. Then once we did one of them, everybody was like, uh, yeah, we'll take it. <laughs> But, but I want to tell you the power of it when you're there on a Monday morning a little inner city kid walks up and their, their, their world has been transformed and teachers are sitting there crying And I, I had one principal she, she, she wasn't a follower of Jesus she had been antagonistic she was wondering what is your angle what are you doing and we just kept telling her we're going to serve you no strings attached and I'll never forget, we, we had transformed that school, and we're, I'm walking with this woman. She doesn't know what to say. And finally she just grabbed me. She said, why did you do this? And, and I said, because this is the kind of stuff Jesus does. And I think if he were still walking around this planet, he'd be doing this kind of stuff. And we're his representatives. And we just want to do what he would do. This woman, she didn't know God at all. You know the only thing she could say? She said, well, glory to God. I thought, Matthew (laughs) 5.16. That they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. When, when, When you do things in an undeniable way through His power, You can't help but bring God glory. Folks, I can't save anybody. I can't guarantee anybody will come to Christ, no matter how much I love them, how much I reach out to them. That's God in them. But I can live in a way that will bring Him glory. I I can live in a way, and a church can live in a way, that we light the world, that that we're salt where it's needed. What would it look like (laughs) if a church at this stage of the game, right out of the gate, if every single person in this church embraced that kind of life? What kind of impact could we have on the bay? What what, what kind of light in this place? Because if it could happen here, could you imagine the reverberations around the world of the people groups that we'll never reach, but they're right here at our doorstep? Of the companies that as a pastor, if I were to go walk on the door and say, hey, I'd like to have an influence in your company, they go, yeah, thanks, no. But some of you walk through those doors every day. Of the thought and the creativity and the innovation to bring God glory for the kingdom. And who knows, the greatest idea to reach our area and to reach the world It may be the one that he's placed in your heart and your mind. If you had enough faith to even share it, to even dream it, to even believe that God wants to use this group in a new and radical way around the world. Guys, it's not rocket science. Love your neighbors, light your world, and let him take care of the rest. Let's pray. Father, I I do. I thank you so much for this group. I just look around this room, and it gets me excited to think, what if? What if in this age, in this time, you are raising up something new for your glory in an amazing way? I, I pray, would you continue to keep your hand on each person here? Would you draw them to yourself? Would you help them to see themselves the way you see them? Loved, cherished, forgiven, empowered. And as they embrace that identity, they'd have courage to go for it, for your kingdom and for your glory. Lord, I thank you for Jesus. I stand absolutely amazed that these principles that he taught us, he lived first. And so we're never wondering what it looks like for a real person to do this. He's willing to come and do what we could not do for ourselves. And now he continues to do through us things that we never could fathom. Would you do it in an amazing way for your kingdom and for your glory? I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.